Dave Combs is a lifelong piano player, and one day a song entered his mind. He played this song for friends and family and they loved it. That song ended up being called Rachel's Song. This song has touched millions of lives. This episode, you will hear the story of Dave's transition from the corporate world to becoming a successful musician. I can never remember a time when I didn't play the piano, at least play something. And it's probably because my mother and father both played the piano. And my father loved to play by ear. He would sit down, he'd not reading music. He would just start playing by what he heard in his head. And I'm certain that at probably earlier than I can probably remember, I probably sat on his lap while he was playing the piano. And he probably, you know, I would probably make mess up no, no, notes on the piano. But eventually he taught me how to play some songs on the piano. I can still play the very first song that he taught me how to play. It's a very simple but cute little song, and I, I, I can still play that little song. Why didn't you want to go into music at the start? Was it just a, a, like a fun hobby, or was it just you didn't see the, the ability to, to make it in music? Well, you know, you've heard the phrase, starving musician. <laughs> and I think it's because, you know, most musicians in trying to make a living at their music find it a very difficult field to make a living in unless you're extremely talented and get extremely well connected and get some really good breaks. Mm. So my career uh, was all about technology and computers and manufacturing and that kind of thing because I have a degree, a BS degree in mathematics, a minor in physics. I have my MBA from Wake Forest University. So I'm a business person and a scientist and a computer IT oriented kind of person. So my idea when I got out of college was to go to work for a company using my skills as a computer programmer in IT. And I did. And that's how I started my first job in 1969 with Western Electric, which was an arm of the Bell system uh, that was the manufacturing arm of, of Ma Bell, as we called it at the time. Yeah. So yeah. my whole career was my my goals and my objectives as a business person were to work in that industry. Now, music was my hobby, was my avocation. My, I love music. I was active in my church. I was a, my church pianist for a while, and then they asked me to direct the choir for while I was in college. They paid me a little bit of money to help me through college. So I would direct the choir on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and in choir practice on Wednesday night. And so that was all four years through, through college. And even after I started my job in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in 1969 with Western Electric, I found a little church that needed a choir director. So I, a part-time job, I did that on weekends. So music stayed a part of my life, even though my career went into industry. And it, it remained a part and still obviously remains a big part of my life because I love music. I love to make music. I love listening to music. I like all, almost every genre of music there is. I love jazz. I love classical, uh, the blues. I love the doo-wop of the 60s and 50s. And I love uh, the old rock and roll music. You know, I, I love music. And so it's, it's, it's a part of me. Yeah. And when you were working in your, your corporate job, were you kind of in the back of your mind, like, I, I would love to work in music, but I don't see a pathway to it? Like I'm just I'm wondering what was the what was the thing that made you switch and go? Do you know what? Actually, I'm going to do this music thing full time. 
it's really strange that uh, when you ask me that, because up until I wrote the music that now is known as Rachel's song, I had never written a song before in my life. Now, I've been involved in music, directing music, but it was always other people's music. It never occurred to me, Sam, this may sound strange, but it never even crossed my mind to write music. Mm. And so I sat down at my piano when I was 33 years old, <laughs> you know, well into my career. And the way I relaxed when I got home from work was to sit down at my piano and play something. I sat down one evening in January of 1981 and just started playing. And what I started playing was a song. And it wasn't a song that had a name or I'd heard anywhere. I just played it. And it was like, as I played it, I heard the next notes that I was supposed to play it, like you would hear a familiar song. It was familiar in my mind somehow. And so I played this song. Didn't think much about it. A couple of days later, my wife, Linda, comes home from work. She was working at the local bank at the time. She says, Dave, what is the name of this song that I've got stuck in my head all day long? You know how you get an earworm, you know, a little song that you, you hear a snippet of it in the morning and you hum it all day long? Well, she said, what is the name of this? So she hummed a little bit of it. And I said, well, Linda, it doesn't have a name. It's just something I made up. And she said, what? You made that up? Well, it's beautiful. <clears throat> have you written it down? I said, well, no, I've, I've got it up here. It's, it's not going anywhere. And she said, no, no, you better write it down and put it in the piano bench because a truck might run over you and that song would be gone. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I did. I wrote it down and, and put it in the piano bench. But I'd play it for uh, over and over for us and for family and friends or whatever. And, but we tried to come up with a name for it. No name fit. Two years later, some good friends of ours had a baby girl named Rachel. They asked me and Linda to be her godparents. Of course, we accepted, and at her christening service, Linda and I were sitting in the, in the back uh, watching all these wonderful words being said about little Rachel. And at the end of the formal service, I, I had kept looking up at the front of the church. There was a beautiful grand piano sitting on the front of the platform at the church. And I punched Linda, and I said, hey, what do you think about me playing this little song that we can never come up with a name with at, at part of this service? She says, ah, I think that's a good idea. So I went up to the front of the church, asked the family and the preacher if it'd be okay if I played this song. I, you know, I didn't want to, they didn't come to hear a concert from me. <laughs> I wanted their permission. So they said, well, sure. So I went over to the piano, everybody sat back down and I started playing this song. And I got most of the way through it. And I noticed that, you know, my, my eyes were a little bit wet and I kept hearing this sniffles in the crowd. You know, people were getting emotional. Well, when you hear Rachel's song, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. It is a very, it can, if you really listen to it, it can bring out your emotions. It really can. So when, the, when I finished playing the song, I looked over at little Rachel in the arms of her mother. And I said, okay, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's song in her honor. And Sam, that was the perfect name for the song. It stuck. It was just perfect. So that's how the song got its name. Now you roll forward three more years. I was working as Western Electric. As we discussed earlier, the, uh, I was in the, the, didn't call it logistics then. It was manufacturing resource planning and it was just in time manufacturing. I was helping to implement software with Western Electric factories. And as, as luck would have it, or maybe not luck, as probably Providence had it, I was working in Nashville, Tennessee. 
And so Linda says, well, while well, you're there in Nashville, they got hundreds of studios. Why don't you go find one and let's get a demo recording made of Rachel's song? I said, okay, that sounds pretty good. So one day I was working there all week. I'd go on Monday, come home on Friday. So one evening I get in my rental car, go downtown Nashville looking for a studio. So I go over to the part of town in Nashville, they call it Music Square. And it's about two square blocks that inside those square blocks is everything musical. I mean, it's the Country Music Hall of Fame, Songwriters Hall of Fame, the ASCAP and BMI headquarters, the RCA studio, you know, everything musical. Kind of a lot of history in that little two square blocks. So I was driving down this one street called Roy Acuff Place. Some of your listeners may remember the name Roy Acuff. He was really big in country music in the United States and on the Grand Ole Opry. They named the street after him, Roy Acuff Place. Down at the end of this street was a big building, looked like a barn, and out front had a big old mock-up of a water wheel. I guess it, it probably was a real water wheel that they'd moved to the front. And on the side of the building, it said the music mill. I thought, well, what a clever name, and it probably has to do with music, so let me check it out. Pulled in the parking lot, and sure enough, through the glass doors, I saw the man sitting at a desk. Went over, knocked on the door, he unlocked it, and, and invited me in. And I told him, he said, hi, I'm George Clinton. And I said, well, I'm Dave, and I'm looking for a studio. <laughs> and about the time I got the words out of my mouth, I look around. Over here on the left was a huge picture, life-size picture of Glenn Campbell. Here was a huge picture of the great group Alabama and the Forrester sisters. And it was the walls were plastered with gold records and platinum records. So I obviously had landed in a, a classy place. So George says, well, Dave, you're in a studio. And I said, well, I've never been in one before. And he said, well, let me take you on a tour. So he showed me the Studio A, which is always the showcase, the big studio. In that big studio room, you could put a concert band, in, a, a symphony in there, or a high school chorus or something. And then a big nine-foot grand piano over in the corner. And it was, it was impressive. And he said, well, let's go in the control room. He opens this big old heavy door. It's about that thick, you know, soundproof doors where you open it up and you go in. And we went in the control room and wow, it looked I'd walked, it looked like I'd walked into a NASA control room. <laughs> I mean, this console was about eight feet long. I think it probably had 32 tracks on the console. And there was recorders all around the room, and it was really impressive. And I said, George, how in the world, how much does this place cost to, to rent? He said, Well. It's $125 an hour plus engineer. And I thought, oh boy, that's out of my range. And he said, well, don't worry about it. He said, the fellow who owns this studio owns a little studio across the street. It's in an old rent house. It's just got a little baby grand piano and a little small control room. And it's $15 an hour plus engineer. Okay, George, that's, that's about my speed. I can do that. All right, one other thing, George, I need a piano player to play my song. And he thought for a second, he said, I know just the person. His name is Gary Prim. He said, uh, let's go back to my desk and I'll look up his phone number for you. And so he went over and got his Rolodex and looked up P for Prim. And then, he, oh, there's Gary. Wrote his number down on a piece of paper and handed it to him. I said, George, I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much. And so I went to my back to my hotel room, immediately picked up the phone, called Gary Prim. Got his answering machine. In about 30 minutes, he called me back. And he said, hi, this is Gary Prim. Can I help you? And I said, yeah, I've got this song, a little song that uh, I need a demo recording made of it. And George Clinton said, you could do that for me. He said, oh, yeah, I can do that for you, certainly. 
I said, well, what do you need? He said, well, I just need you to send me a recording of you playing it and send me a lead sheet. I said, okay, I can, I can do a recording when I get home, but what's a lead sheet? Hmm. Now, I was, showing, <laughs> I was showing my ignorance of the music industry at the time, and he said, oh, it's just it's the melody and the chords written out on a piece of paper. I said, well, I've got that. I just didn't know to call it a lead sheet. So I got home, mailed him that, uh, the lead sheet and cassette tape of me playing it on my piano. And then he and I met two weeks later in a, at this little studio. This was August the 22nd, 1986 at 6 p.m. It's one of those things where I will never forget where I was when on that particular date and time. At six o'clock, we met and Gary Prim comes walking in the studio, carrying his synthesizer under his arm and, and we meet and he's a very friendly fellow and just a delightful instant friend kind of person. Sets up his synthesizer and sits at the piano and starts, you know, warming up on the piano. And I'm back in the control room with the engineer. <clears throat> and uh, uh, pretty soon Gary says, uh, I'm ready. To, let's, let's do a let's try it. So uh, the recording engineer hits the record button on the tape recorder. And and he says, we're rolling and uh, <laughs> through the little speaker in the other uh, room. And so Gary starts playing Rachel's song. Now, rem remember, Sam, this is the first time I've ever heard anybody play my music but me. So I had no idea what to expect, and I was blown away. I could not believe what I was hearing. Well, he got halfway through the song, and he, for some reason he said, I, I can do better than that. So he stopped, rewind the tape, start over. Second time through, he played it from beginning to end, no mistakes at all, perfect. And I thought, wow, this is just unbelievable. And Gary says, well, I'm not done yet. We're going to make this really special. I said, oh, really? Okay. And so he said, I want to double the piano part with an electric piano sound. And when you do that in a recording session, it just makes the sound sound so much fuller. It's a, a really rich sound to it. So he puts the headphones on like you've got on now and sits there at his synthesizer. And he's really playing along with himself as he hears the piano part. He's playing the electric piano on the keyboard. He nailed it. I mean, the notes that he played the second time were right on top of what he played the first time. Now, that shows you the skill of a true, talented session piano player. They can replicate things unbelievably in perfect timing. Uh, it just blew me away. Then he said, okay, now we need to do some more. He said, I want to give this thing some bottom. And what he meant was I need to add some low strings sound to this recording. So he set his synthesizer on the string sound and put it back on two more tracks and we're recording the string sound. And he said, I want to put some top to it too. Some little ethereal, you know, the high string sound, two more tracks, rewind it back and play along. He's adding the high string sound. And then in the middle of the song, he said, I think I need to add some horns in there to give it a little punch because he did something with my song that I had never done. And that was, he played two verses in the key of C. I always played in the key of C and then instantly, he, for the third verse and chorus, he went up to the key of C sharp, a half a step, no modulation, no nothing. It was like boom and bam. It just it caught your attention. It was a musical surprise, and it just raises the level of energy about, of the song. And so he finished the song and with the horns and all the other parts, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm sure I had my mouth open. I didn't know what to say. I was just in awe of what was going on. 
Well, he came in the studio and we listened to the whole thing. And he said, yeah, I like it. That, that's good. I, that's good. I said, okay. So I paid him his, I wrote a check to him for our agreed upon fee and he left. And I had no idea whether I'd see Gary Prem again or not. Turns out that we later would have re would record over 170 songs with 15 albums together. And he and I, to this day, are best friends. Uh, I love him like a brother. He is an amazing human being that is just wonderful. So that was my introduction to Gary Prem and getting Rachel's song recorded. And, and then I couldn't, I couldn't listen to it often enough. I got my rental car on my way back to the hotel. I would play it and, and I'd hit rewind, play it again, play it again. And I got so enthralled with the music, I got lost going back to the uh, hotel at the airport. Now, if you go to Nashville, Tennessee, it's one of those towns where three interstates intersect. And when there's flyover this way and that way and the other way, if you're not in the right le left lane or right lane, <laughs> you're not going where you think you're going. <laughs> you're going to have to go around again. Turns out I circled Nashville three times before I ever got off on the right exit to go to the airport. I was in another world. Anyhow, so I got back to the hotel, called my wife, Linda. I said, Linda, you're not going to believe what I, has just happened. Now, this is, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a way to play it for. This is 1986, remember? And so I, I'm sure she, I was talking so fast and excitedly, she probably thought I'd stop by the ABC store and got me a fifth of liquor and <laughs> wasn't intoxicated, but I was intoxicated on what just happened is what happened, what was. Well, I immediately uh, wanted to play it for her. Of course, when I got back home the next Monday, I, I didn't get home till Monday of that week, next week. And I played it for her and she was blown away with it. And everybody that I played this song for just absolutely couldn't believe what they were hearing. And, and of course, it, then it had never been heard on the radio, never any place, nothing had been done with it. A friend of mine had a radio program on a Saturday morning. He was a DJ for a three hour long big band music program, you know, where they play a, something. He talks about the song, who the, the, the orchestration is, who the instrumentalists are and how it was written in that. And his name was Bob McCone, good friend of mine. Well, I played it, the song for Bob. Uh, and he was taken by that song so much. He said, Dave, you have got to let me play this song on my radio program. I said, well, okay, but all I have is this reel to reel master tape. I don't have anything else. Uh, you, you take good care of it. So he took it to the radio station. They made a copy of it and he played it on his radio song show that next Saturday. And of course I'm, we're at home. I got a tape recording of it so I, I can rem still hear it. But I could, that's the first time I ever heard my own music played on a radio station. And you can imagine how exciting that would be. And uh, so I, about a half an hour after the, his part finished of playing it, the, my phone rang and it was the station manager for that radio station. It was WKLM FM 94.5 in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he says, Dave, I'm so-and-so the station manager. And he said, I've been in radio for over 20 years. And this something happened just now that has never happened. I've never seen it happen in my entire career. He said, you know, we've got a phone bank with, I don't know, 10 or 12 phone lines that people can call in on. He said, as soon as Bob played Rachel's song on the radio, that phone bank lit up. All of the lines were busy. People calling in saying, 
what was that song you just played? Tell me more about Rachel's song. Play that again. Tell me more about this Combs guy in Winston-Salem. And so he said, you've got something here. And he said, this is just incredible. And you know, that radio station played Rachel's song every, not every day, every hour for the next year and a half or so. I mean, they, they would somewhere in the hour, if you tuned into that radio station, you're going to hear Rachel's song. They loved it that much. And their listeners loved it that much. And to me, that was the signal. That was the, the moment really that I thought, well, maybe this song does have something more that I can do with it that might lead to a, a full-time career doing something with my music. And it really wasn't until I realized that appeal of what I had created that I even considered that it might lead to what it eventually did, which was me being able to do my music full time. Yeah. So I know that was a long answer to your question, but that's kind of how it happened. And, and a lot of things in my life take years to take place. So, but that's what, what, how that happened. And where did the emotion for the song come from? Cause I, I've listened to it on YouTube and I'm like, this is such an emotional kind of deep song. How did you, you know, capture that emotion and put it into the track? You know, you're, you're right. I've got lots of letters from people that say the same thing about they people say, well, I cried, I laughed. I, you know, it was a roller coaster. It was not, it's not a song that takes you down to the depths and leaves you there. It's a, it's one where you ride this wave of emotion. I think through the song when you, it starts out very softly and a very high, high notes. Then it gradually brings you in with more middle tone notes. And then, as I said, the elect, all the other sounds start coming in. And then you go into a chorus part of it that goes in, in F, the F chord. And then it goes to an F minor chord. Well, minor chords are kind of associated with sad and deep, thoughtful, you know, deep things. And so it, it goes from a major to a minor, F minor, and then, but then back to the major. So it rides you through this roller coaster of emotions. And I've thought about that an awfully lot, Sam, and about the closest thing I think I can come up with, and people have also suggested it, was I lost my father to a, a tragic car accident on December 22nd, 1980, probably just a, two or three weeks before I wrote this music. Now, if that was my first experience with loss close to me in my family. I'd never lost a really close relative. And those of your listeners that have know what I'm talking about. It's, it's a very uh, gut wrenching. It takes you to places you've never been before in your life. It's a, it's takes you through a roller coaster of, ex, of emotions. You remember the happy times with, with your loved one. You remember this, you're so sad about losing them. It's that roller coaster of emotions. And Folks have suggested to me, and it may be exactly right, that my emotions came out in that song. And so maybe as you listen to that song, if you think about those uh, grieving process that I was going through, perhaps that's the partial, at least, explanation for why it has those highs and lows and, and the range of emotions in it. Yeah. And, and over that, that year or year and a half, you said, where Rachel's song was playing on, on this radio station every hour what were you doing then? Were you kind of still thinking like, I need to actually, you know, go into music properly because I've, I've created something magical here. Or were you still kind of just working in your job and just like, Oh, that's a nice little cool thing that's happening over there. Well, I was still working my job, of course. And I was 
one of the things I did was I had to transcribe the music of Rachel's song. I started getting letters from people that said, I want to play Rachel's. I'm a piano player. I would love to play Rachel's song uh, for myself or maybe as an offertory at church or a prelude or some special music. I love to play Rachel's song. So I spent probably, and it took me about three months to do this because I transcribed the music to Rachel's song note for note. What Gary's arrangement. Now I knew the song, but I, I wanted to have it so that when you read the, you get the sheet music, what you play is exactly what Gary played on the piano. And so I meticulously went measure by measure through the entire song. It took me months to do that. I did a lot of it on an airplane. I was, I had the headset on with my little Walkman cassette player. I'd play a measure and rewind, play it and rewind, play it and rewind and write down what I heard. But I did get it. it it's transcribed and was able to produce the sheet music for Rachel's song. But on the radio side of it, I also realized that I needed to get this song on more radio stations than just that one. And I saw there were back then in the United States, there were probably about 400 easy listening radio stations. Now there's maybe, I don't know, a handful, maybe less than five in the whole country. The every, music genres have changed, but back then we had a lot of them. And I knew that these other radio stations would probably like to play Rachel's song. But how do I get in touch with them? Well, I bought the, the list of all the radio stations in the country from Radio and Records magazine. They had a publication for all the phone numbers. Started calling all these easy listening stations all around the country. And I would, you know, talk to the program director, tell him what it, about Rachel's song and send him a copy of Rachel's song. And to, I think every person I ever sent it to put it on their station and their programming. They loved the song. Hmm. And one, some of the stations would say, tell me that we don't do our own programming. We get our programming from a company called Bonneville Broadcasting. It was a big syndicate kind of thing. And, and, and so I said, well, <laughs> I need to get a hold of that person. And I got a hold of the person at Bonneville who did the easy listening programming, sent him Rachel's song. He loved it. And so he said, I'm going to put this in rotation on all my stations. I said, how many you got? He said, I have over 200 radio stations. Oh, okay. So anyway, so instantly I go from a handful of radio stations to over 200 all over the whole country. And eventually every easy listening station in the country was playing Rachel's song. And I started getting fan mail from people. And this fan mail was so impressive and so personal that they were just pouring their heart and soul out as to how much my music touched their lives. Now you see my book over here, Touched by the Music. That's where the title came from. These people were telling me how they were touched by my music. And that's when I began to think that maybe I can grow this somehow or other into a, a profession instead of an avocation, make it my vocation. So. That's, that's the kind of the, the radio airplay kind of kicked that thought more into my mind that, that I do really have something that people want. And that, and if you stop and think about it as an entrepreneur, that's the definition of an entrepreneur is when you have something other people want, all you got to do is figure out how to get it to them. That's the, that's your business model. I don't care what the product is. So that's kind of my thinking and how the radio played into that. Yeah. And then when you transitioned into into you know going full time into music and, and making it your your vocation, was it something where you were like, right, I'm just going to go out and perform Rachel's song, or were you like, actually, I'm going to try write more music, or, or had you already written more music by this point? Yes, that was the that was the trick. 
because I only had that one song in 1986. And it took me until 1988 to write enough music to, to produce my first album called Rachel's Song. And it has, it has the first seven songs that I ever wrote. They're on this album. And so, but I, and, and CDs were just starting about that time. Up, up to that point, it was cassette tapes and records, you know, vinyl records. So I, I knew I wanted to have a CD because the CD quality was so much uh, high, more high fidelity than a, you know, I thought than a vinyl record. Although now people say, well, that's not really the case. But anyhow, I wanted a CD. So I got busy and I wrote more songs. And once I got uh, seven of them written, I said, well, that's, I can't wait any longer. I went and figured out how I can make an album. I had to design the cover myself and figure out how to get who who is going to manufacture it and how many should I order, how much does it cost, all those business decisions that go under any kind of a business. But I got my CDs made. And then once I got my CDs manufactured and available, and I also did cassette tapes as well. Back then, we were still selling a lot of cassette tapes, more than the CDs, actually. And so I had the, both those products of my first album. And then I, I needed to figure out how do I get these cassette tapes and CDs available to people to purchase? Besides those that wrote to me, you know, they tracked me down through the radio stations, got my address and write me a letter. Now I had those addresses but, and I could ship those. But if you're going to make a business out of this, you need to have it available so that the public can be exposed to it and hear it and buy it. And Linda and I sat down as part of our entrepreneurial analysis of this, and we're both business people and business minded. We realized that this one criteria was this music has to be heard to be bought. You're not going to just find it on a shelf and say, oh, I like that pretty cover and I'll buy that. It has to be heard and that hearing of the music will draw people to want to buy it. So we were trying to figure out how can I get my music heard and so that people, the, the, so that the, the demand will be there. I had no luck in going to the record stores. People that actually sold, played and sold music as a business, they didn't want to have anything to do with me. I you know I wasn't the Beatles. I wasn't a, a Michael Jackson. I was, I was not a name they recognized. So I had to do something else. And another characteristic of an entrepreneur is you don't give up. If you can't do this way, you figure out another way to do it. So I, I knew from the letters I got, and I got lots and lots of letters that people wanted this music. So there was no, never a doubt about that part of it. The question was, how do I do it? I happened to be working at AT&T then. AT&T, Western Electric became AT&T in 1984 when they broke up the Bell system. And so I was working for AT&T at the time in Maryland, in Bethesda, Maryland. And the lady whose office right next to me uh, had a friend who owned a gift shop in Old Town, Alexandria. Now, those of your listeners that traveled to Washington, D.C. as a tourist or whatever, know that across the river is a town called Alexandria, and Old Town is a historic, wonderful tourist place. Restaurants and wonderful shops. It's just a beautiful place to, to visit. Well, this lady's shop was in that, on King Street in Old Town, and the name of her shop was America. She sold everything to do with America, you know, anything red, white, and blue. She had it for sale in her shop and she played music in her shop and she played patriotic music, uh, John Philip Sousa stuff, you know, all the, you know, patriotic songs. 
And so my friend that worked, I worked with, she gave one of my CDs of Rachel's song to Jane that owned this, this store. And two or three days later, I get a phone call and it's Jane on the other end. I had never met her before. She introduced herself and told me what had happened. She says, every time your song comes on in my shop, all the customers in the shop come flocking over to the uh, the counter and say, what is that music that's playing? Do you have it for sale? I want to take that home with me. I want to play it at home. Well, she didn't have it, of course. So she called me and she said, can you sell me some at wholesale so that I can sell some to my customers? Now this, I had never sold my music at wholesale to anybody yet. I didn't know how I was going to do it. So I said, okay, well, we'll figure out something. So we reached an agreement on a wholesale price and, and she was going to sell the CD for normal CD prices. And I said, okay. So she said, can you bring me some tonight? <laughs> I said, okay, after work, uh, my wife and I will be down there tonight and bring you a box of, of tapes and CDs. And we did. And so that was great. And we had, I had no idea what was going to happen. About two or three days later, she calls me back, said, Dave, I got a problem. Those are all gone. How about bringing me some more tonight? And how about doubling the order this time? Okay. <laughs> so, all right. Box back up, go back down to Old Town Alexandria. Now, remember, trips to Old Town Alexandria was not a chore. We would go to our favorite restaurant, Landini Brothers, across the street from her shop and have a great dinner while we were down there as well. But we took her a box of tapes and CDs, and we made that trip to Old Town Alexandria every week for over a year. I probably gained 10 pounds just eating at that restaurant from all those trips. <laughs> but anyway... She sold thousands of tapes and CDs out of that one shop, just that one album from playing it. And then's when my MBA and my analytical brain kicked in. I'm a business person and, and I know an opportunity when I see it. I'm good with numbers. So I created a spreadsheet and on my spreadsheet, I made a column that said, all right, how many has Jane sold in her shop of tapes? How many CDs? All right, here's what, it, here's how much I sold it to her for. Here's how much it cost me to make them. And down at the bottom, you can do the math and come out with a gross profit for that sale. And I did it for, you know, several months worth. And I, I, it was a nice number. And I said, okay, what if we could find one shop, just one like hers in all 50 states? Now, let's not get greedy. Let's just say 50. It's a big country. So column two of my spreadsheet is column one times 50. Bottom line number, well, now that's looking very interesting. That's a pretty good size number. Okay. All right, let's not get totally greedy, but let's say I found five gift shops, just five in every state, 250 gift shops in column three. You multiply all that out down at the bottom, and the number on the gross profit is right there. I said, Linda, come here and look at this number. That number is twice what I make at AT&T. Mm. So Sam, you got the picture. <laughs> I know what I've got to do, right? I got to find that way to duplicate that, that gift shop. I got to find those 200 or 550 and then going to find the 250. And so that was when I really decided that, yes, this could be something that I could do a, what I dreamed about, which was working for myself as an entrepreneur and doing my music business full time. So that's when the light bulb went off and how I really started to work on it. And how did you kind of gain these entrepreneurial skills? Was it kind of just 
you learned along the way or did you you know you said you have an MBA so I'm wondering where you got the ideas and the and the thought processes in place to to become such a a savvy person well you know I think most of my life I have been kind of an entrepreneurial attitude person even when I was in the sixth grade I had a, a a boy scout project to earn a merit badge in in business and my project was to raise potatoes and sell those potatoes to my elementary school lunch near the cafeteria and see what I could make on it. I kept meticulous records. I knew how much the seed potatoes cost. I knew how much the fertilizer cost. I knew how many hours I spent, you know, plowing the field, getting the, the, the ground ready, planting all that stuff. And that year I don't, I wasn't a whole lot of money, but I made a pretty good profit on selling. I think I sold, I believe it was 25 bushels of potatoes that I sold to my element. I fed potatoes to my, all my classmates at school that year. And uh, so that was, and I was only 12 years old then. And I had a paper route. So there was another, you know, I was in, industrious. I, we were from a poor family who didn't have a lot of money. We, we drank uh, reconstituted milk from powder. That's how poor we were. And I worked at a chicken farm to get some free chickens and eggs for us to eat sometimes. So we, I was, inter, I guess enterprising is probably a better term for it. I always was looking for a way to help out and, and make something to help the family. And so those ideas and aspirations, I think stayed with me all the way through college, even though I, I, I was so pleased and my family was so pleased that I graduated and got a wonderful job with a big corporation. Probably the, I was one of the first in the family to ever do that. So, but in my back of my mind was always these things when I would get a, even a harebrained idea. I'm not going to take the time today to tell you about it, but I have a funny story of one of my ideas that absolutely did not work. I would love to hear but that. It was a, it's, Dave, I, I would, I would <laughs> absolutely love to hear that. It's uh, it's it's one where I, it, we were having a drought that summer, big drought. It was dry. Every, everybody's landscaping yards were just brown as they could be. And we had just moved into a new house and planted, I don't know, probably a thousand dollars worth of or more of plants that were new landscaping plants and bushes. Well, you don't want to spend that money and have the, you know, the drought just kill them all and you lose all that. So I needed an irrigation system to water all those plants. And I came up, I'm a, I'm a pretty good engineer as well. I came up with a way to make my own homemade drip watering system. I went to every drugstore in Winston-Salem. Now, they probably thought I was crazy. They didn't know what I was up to. I bought every cheap water hose they were selling. They had these solid plastic at CVS and Walgreens, these garden hoses that were really cheap, like 99 cents for 25 feet. I would buy every one they had because I needed several hundred feet of this stuff. And what I did was I connected them all together and wire, you know, snaked them around my yard and by, by each of my plants. And I took a drill and I drilled a tiny little hole right by every plant so that it would squirt out just enough water. And I snaked it around. I engineered it so that it was all level and the, the hydraulics of it would work so that it didn't squirt big down here and none up here. Figured that how to do that. And I put a, a water pressure reducer on the spigot. I put a timer there so I could have it automatically come on and, and water. And I measured how much water would come out. So I had for about $200, I had my own, I had over, I think it was over 500 plants that I individually watered with this watering system. 
And so it was great. I, they all looked great. I thought, what an idea. It is the worst drought in, a, in 15 years. People are going to flock to know how to do this. I wrote it up, wrote me a little booklet of, and designed it. Here's the instructions of how you go get your garden hose. Here's how you lay it out and all this stuff. I thought, man, this is going to be great. I even bought ads in uh, popular mechanics magazine, Southern Living, these classified ads in the back of the magazine. I thought, man, these people are going to be, my, my mailbox is going to be full of orders. I said, you send me $10 and I'll send you the plans of how to do this. And I printed up a whole bunch of these uh, booklets to, to ship out and everything and paid for these ads. And of course, they tell you, oh, this goes out to 2 million people. And this one goes to 3 million people, whatever. And I thought, man, I'm going to be swamped. And it was like the Maytag repairman sitting, if you ever remember it's that old commercial, he's sitting there waiting for somebody to come in to have their, their Maytag repaired. Nobody ever came. I think I got one order out of all of that, all that effort in the worst drought of the century. And I got one order for a homemade watering system. So it, it, it was a, an idea. It was a great idea, but it did not work. And <laughs> It was, it was, I look back on it, it's funny. And we always said, well, you tell the watering story, watering system story. That's a, that's a flop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I think every good entrepreneur has, has ideas all the time and, you know, acting on the ones that you think are the best is, is something that, that we all maybe do or, or don't do. But the fact that you tried, you know, and you learned something from that, it's like, well, people, people will sell you a dream and tell, you know, this is going out to 2 million people. This is going out to 3 million people. But realistically, you know, it, it doesn't really matter because you know for we know they could have been lying or it just might have been one of those ones where you didn't have product market fit but with Rachel's song and your album it seems like you did have that product market fit and so when once you were full-time and, and selling the cds and, and the tapes into stores and had had left your corporate job what did you do day to day were you just becoming you know your own kind of cd and you know tape distributor or were you just like an active full-time musician well, it was a little both. You know, as an entrepreneur, any entrepreneur will tell you, you wear a lot of hats. You basically do whatever needs to be done when it needs to be done. You don't look around and there is nobody else to hand it off to. So I did, I'll, very early on, I hired an office manager. I couldn't, I was working before I quit my job. I had needed somebody there to answer the phone and pack up the orders and ship them out. So I hired a full-time office manager in, when I was in Maryland and I hired another person when we moved back to North Carolina. And so about every year from 1988 on, I would go back to Nashville and in the studio with Gary and do another album. So people that bought Rachel's song said, okay, when are you going to, I love that one. When are you going to do the next one? And so I, I knew that I needed to do more. So my second album, I hadn't written enough songs yet. So I did a Christmas album. So we got together in the studio and in the heat of July <laughs> Now you can imagine trying to make get yourself in the Christmas mood in July. <laughs> That's a challenge, but we did. And that, that July, I think it was 1989, we uh, went to recorded my first Christmas album. It's, that's the name of the album, First Christmas. So that was that year. And then 19 uh, later that year, I also recorded one called Beautiful Thoughts, which was my second album of original music. I did sit down at the piano. Uh, at my wife's insistence, she said, you got to spend time on the piano bench. And she called it the Bob technique. And Bob stands for butt on the bench. She said, don't say that. <laughs> I said, well, that's really what it was, butt on the bench. 
uh, maybe it's behind on the bench. That's a little more proper, I suppose. But anyway, I would get up in the morning early, and before I went to work, I'd sit down at the piano, and I would attempt to write a song. And most mornings, I was able to at least have the beginnings of a new song. And it took me a while to get it done, but I wrote enough songs for my second original composition album called Beautiful Thoughts. Still one of my favorite albums. It's just the, the songs are really special, and it's great. But I did that every year we'd go back to Nashville and record another album. Now, sometimes I would do an album of favorite hymns. You know, I was very active in my church. I love hymns. And uh, uh, many of those hymns are, of course, written by folks that are there where you are in Great Britain. But uh, I love those old hymns. And uh, so I've, I have four albums of favorite hymns that I have produced and Gary has performed on. And I have seven albums now of original composition music. And then I have a patriotic album called Celebrate Freedom. There's another story behind that. But, uh, and then I have an album of favorite, uh, familiar favorites, you know, popular songs like Misty and Moon River and all the, those popular instrumentals. But back to the what happened when I finally quit my job, uh, something that really put me in the really high gear was an article that I wrote in Guidepost magazine. This little magazine, I think it goes around the world, really. It's been around a long time, and it's full of uh, feel-good stories, really inspirational stories of people who've had wonderful things happen to them in their life. And I wrote an article that appeared in this September issue of 1994, and there's me sitting at my pen, and it's called Two-Part Harmony. And this article came about from a fan. I got a phone call from a fan who was, turns out to be a writer for Guidepost magazine. And she, she didn't call me to write the article. She called me to, to tell me about how much my music had meant to her. She, her name is Roberta Messner, M-E-S-S-N-E-R. If you Google her or go to YouTube, you can, you can see her story and read her story that is very special in her own right. But uh, she had a, has had a disease that was very, very painful, required many, many surgeries. And, was, and my music had helped her through her surgeries and her pain. And that's what she called to tell me about. But then when she in, was inquisitive and asked me about, you know, how I wrote Rachel's song, all this, the stories that we've talked about just up to this point, she said, wow, that makes a really good story. And I, she said, may I submit this story idea to Guidepost? And I said, well, sure, Roberta. I've had it. I had no idea whether they'd take it or not. Well, she called me back in a few days and said, yeah, they love the story. We, let's do it. So she helped me write the, the article. And actually, she did most of the writing, and I approved it, even though it's under my name. She wrote it mostly. And it's the story of Rachel's song and how it enabled me to quit my job and how much this, that, that I think the role that God played in this, the spiritual aspect of it was, you know, when I, I did not know whether I should quit my job or not. When you make, when you reach that fork in the road of deciding, do I quit my job or do I, and go full time or, or not? That's a, important for an entrepreneur. That's a big decision point. And for me, it was helped by my fans that wrote to me. I remember that week when I decided, made my decision. I got a letter from a gentleman. He and he didn't know me. I didn't know him. He just knew my music. He said, Dave Combs, your music. It's what God puts you on this planet to do. And that's about all he said. 
And I was sitting in church that next Sunday morning, and I was praying that I would get some guidance about what I should do. And it dawned upon me, and a big smile came on my face because I realized, Lord, you've been talking to me all for months now. You even sent a letter to me this week telling me what I need to do. And here I've been waiting for the lightning to strike and the thunder to clap, and you tell me of the burning bush and all this. Nope. you got to listen to the way the Lord speaks to you through other ways. He speaks to you often through other people. And I, I realized, okay, I know what i got to do. And so that's the story that's in this Guidepost magazine about how I reached that decision through the help of my fans to, to know to, that I could quit my job and do my music full-time, and I haven't looked back. It's, uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful article. And a funny thing happened, though, from this article. This little magazine goes to over 2 million people. And the day that this hit the street, they put my name and phone number and address in the back of the book. My phone started ringing, and it didn't quit. My 800 number. You could pick it up, and somebody's there. And then they wanted to buy the music. Hang it up, pick it up, somebody else is there. It did that for 24 hours a day. I had to hire two people just to answer the phone for uh, weeks. And my mailman came bringing my mail one day. He my front doorbell rang, and I went, and he was standing there with this great big gray canvas bag that he, it was too heavy for him even to pick up. He said, Dave, what have you done? I said, well, <laughs> I just wrote a little article in Guidepost. And he said, well, this bag is full of letters to you. And, and I said, wow. And every day for about two weeks, he was bringing a big old canvas bag. I heard from over 10,000 people, Sam, in less than two weeks about this article and my music. And that was just an incredible affirmation that I made the right decision and uh, that I needed to pursue this at another higher level. And it, it's, it's just been wonderful ever since. Yeah. And I, I'm sure, you know, nowadays, most people would kill to have 10,000 of anybody <laughs> listen to the music or, or, you know, touched by their story. And so, Dave, one thing I want to ask you is, what is it that brings you the most joy out of what you've what you've created here through your music and and through your you know your journey as a, as an artist? I think it is when you when you get my book, chapter twenty one of my book is twenty two pages of a, a selection of just some of the notes and letters that I've gotten from people over the years. And they are so touching. I, it, it might even be a, a one or two Kleenex box read for you. Some of the letters and notes are very touching. You may shed a tear or two. Some of them you'll laugh. But uh, it's, uh, it's those letters and the feedback that even today I, I continually get, even from a podcast like this, that people will hear it and, and get a hold of me and say, wow, this is great. I bought your CD or listened to it, and it is great. And or they're going through a tough, rough patch in their life, and your music kind of helps smooth that rough patch out. It's those kind of uh, affirmations that that my music does indeed touch people in in the places that they need to be touched, and in the ways they need to be touched. That to me is my reward for this, and that's why I do what I'm doing right now when talking to folks like you to spread the word around. There's yeah, millions of people have heard Rachel's song but there's tens and hundreds of millions of people that have not yet. And it's those that I want to reach through podcasts and through other media that I can get the word out. And so that's, that's my mission. And uh, that's, that's what keeps me going. 
anything you want to promote or anything you want the people to you know go and do that now's the best time to say that so where can the people find you online well i've tried to make this as extremely simple as possible i have a website that's simply my last name c-o-m-b-s combsmusic.com and when you go to combsmusic.com you're going to see on one side of the screen you'll see the the book cover and on the other side of the screen if i can get this up the right way you'll see my my rachel song cd cover Underneath those will be links to Amazon.com. Now, for those that are not in the United States, I understand there are other Amazon in the UK and other places that they can purchase the, the book and the CD. And in the middle of my webpage, homepage, you'll see a link that says simply play Rachel's song. You click on that and you will hear the recording of Rachel's song, that original demo recording, unchanged, it's not been edited or shortened or it's, it's not just a sample it is the real the whole thing so listen to rachel's song and then you'll you you can have heard it and then at the top of this page of course there are links to go to hear read about me read about gary prim and go see some other interviews that i've done there's a wonderful interview that jack canfield did for of me you know you know he's the he wrote the forward to my book and he is the co-author of the chicken soup for the soul books so most people will be familiar with Jack, Jack Canfield and his books. So that's the best way, combsmusic.com. And my email links are at the bottom of the page. You can get a hold of me. I read every email and I'd love to hear from your listeners or your viewers. And uh, that's about as simple as I can make it. And hopefully if, even if you're out walking around listening to this on headset, all you got to remember is Combs Music and you'll find me. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.